today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at one man in particular, Galileo Galilei. There may not be another singular person who is a source of such controversy throughout the history of the Catholic Church. And Galileo is the favorite tool that many use to claim that the church is backwards, anti-science, anti-reason, and, and more. So what's the story with Galileo? And why did the Catholic Church react the way she did when Galileo was making all his amazing discoveries? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Dr. John Rao for episode number 25 of the Apologetic Series now. Dr. Rao, thanks for joining us on this, our, I think, last episode that you and I are talking about uh, with these controversies about the Catholic Church through history. Uh, today, we're talking about Galileo. Uh, it's a big, another big hot button issue uh, with people who like to say that the Catholic Church was wrong in certain cases. Um, so can you give us a brief introduction into what the Galileo case is, and then we can kind of get into some of the specifics? Right. Well, the, the Galileo case is uh, something which involves primarily the question of whether Galileo um, uh, could talk about the Copernican theory and consequences of the Copernican theory as something more than a hypothesis. Uh, because of the fact that um, there are, as we'll probably see if we go into greater detail, there were a lot of debates about this. There were a lot of people who um, had questions that um, that uh, proved to be very good questions. And uh, with respect, not just to the theory of Copernicus in general, but to Galileo's particular proofs for his theory. And then it, uh, it, it um, emerges into something more than that because of Galileo's efforts to try to uh, go beyond presenting this as a, an hypothesis, and then um, an effort to try to explain how scripture had to be interpreted with, with respect to it. And there are a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, specific matters here uh, concerning pressures from the outside uh, on, the, on the, uh, the, the, the Inquisition, on the papacy, uh, and then also just um, some rather personal characteristics of, of, of Galileo, which enter into the picture as well. Uh, but uh, it has two stages. There's a stage in uh, 1615, 1616, and then there's the other stage, uh, which is going to uh, reach uh, its conclusion in the 1630s. So I guess in a, in a broad brush, the issue was Galileo was an, an astronomer. He was a scientific-minded guy. And I'm, again, painting with a very broad brush. You can fill in the details. Uh, and he, was, he wasn't the first one to come up with the idea or to, to come up with the hypothesis that the, the Earth revolved around the sun. Like you said, that had already been right. uh, developed by Copernicus before him. Uh, but he was the one who, with telescopes, with this new equipment, was able to say, yeah, this actually is the truth of what is happening. The Earth is revolving around the sun. And the standard narrative is the Catholic Church said, stop, that's contradicting scripture. We're going to haul you up in front of the Inquisition. Uh, we're going to tell you to stop teaching this because this is contrary to the Catholic faith. That is basically the attack that most people would say about the uh, Galileo case. Uh, where do we start to 
get into the details. Where do we fall short there? Well, I mean, from the very beginning, first of all, Copernicus himself is a cleric. Um, and there was no no problem that he experienced uh, with his uh, his his theory, which does indeed uh, overturn the whole Aristotelian and Ptolemaic argument about uh, the um, the the uh, different character of different uh, parts of of the universe, uh, and then the immobility of uh, the universe and the like. But he he didn't run into any problem uh, with with proposing his arguments. Uh, in fact, uh, he he then dedicated his his work uh, to Pope Paul III uh, in the 1530s, and again, no no problems. Uh, there there are very very serious attacks on Copernicus and his theory, and then uh, also on, on on Tycho Brahe, who uh, is a figure that's involved with this as well in his own particular way, by Luther and by Melanchthon. Um, and um, and there are many people who just simply refuse to believe it from the scientific world uh, uh, for, for, for a period afterwards. For example, Francis Bacon, the founder of the scientific method, never, never accepted it uh, at, at all. Um, Galileo was primarily a mathematician. Um, that was his great work at the University of, of Padua in Italy. But as you mentioned, um, he, he, his reputation is really as an astronomer basically because of the fact that he so much perfects the telescope and then be, in being able to perfect it was able again with a famous demonstration of it to the uh, to the uh, leaders of Venice from the uh, the bell tower of San Marco he was able to show them the value of the telescope and then with the telescope what he did was he contradicted the theories about the moon being having a flat surface because he could show that uh, it had uh, various kinds of features of it that, that were parallel to the Earth, and then the satellites around Jupiter, which is something that's not supposed to happen according to the old system. He was able to demonstrate thing about the uh, phases of Venus. Uh, again, I'm not an astronomer, uh, but um, I just simply know that uh, these were all things that were not supposed to be able to be demonstrated on the basis of the uh, the geocentric theory. And he gains great renown because of all this. He already had renown from his work as a mathematician, but this is something which very much gave him a, a greater renown on a popular level. And he's really feted by, by everybody. Uh, he gets a position of importance uh, in the court of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. He goes to Rome, um, where he's welcomed by everybody. This is in 1611. He's welcomed by everybody. He has discussions. He, he becomes a member of this, uh, this institute kind of artistic scientific uh, institute in Rome called the Lincei. Uh, he, is, uh, he is welcomed at the Roman College of the Jesuits, and there are discussions there, but the discussions there are simply with regard to the question of the facts about uh, what, uh, what is involved in his accepting uh, the Copernican uh, argument uh, because of the fact that there are all of these debates at the time among mathematicians with respect to it, there's debates about uh, there's not a debate uh, about what uh, whether what you're seeing is what you're seeing through the telescope, but whether it actually does prove the kinds of things that Galileo said that it proved. And Galileo um, had all sorts of ideas which which were were then debunked over the course of uh, the 1600s and 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 uh, afterwards, I mean, he got into a battle with um, with um, uh, people over over comets, 
which he thought were, in effect, a kind of optical illusion rather than anything else. Uh, when, when Kepler uh, comes up with the argument that then Newton will perfect about uh, the tides having some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of um, uh, being a consequence in some way of, of an, the effect of the moon um, and of the sun, uh, but in an occult way, in other words, in the sense that we, we don't understand how, he, um, Galileo, reacted very badly against this for, for a number of reasons, one of which is something which we might be able to come back to in a different way later, which is uh, the tremendous influence of all kinds of occult, magical, cosmological ideas, because you're at the heyday of the magicians and the alchemists at the beginning of the 1600s. But what ends up getting him into difficulty uh, was that not not the Jesuits in uh, in Rome, but uh, some Dominicans, some Dominicans in uh, in Florence, complained about Galileo's ideas, his Copernican argument, and said that what it did was it just simply violated the um, the interpretation of Scripture, which was unanimously accepted by the fathers and uh, Trent had talked about scripture having to be interpreted in line with the teachings of the fathers. And then what happened is that, uh, and we're still in this, you know, this, this uh, period, like 1615. So Galileo wrote uh, a, um, uh, a, a letter to a Benedictine friend of his who was um, uh, sharing, who shared the Copernican view about this whole question of scripture. And he writes another longer letter to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany about the same thing. And it's here that what he argues is that, uh, especially in the letter to the Grand Duchess, what he argues is that uh, is that uh, uh, scripture is meant to be, uh, scripture has uh, an infallible teaching with regard to spiritual matters, but it's not meant to teach physics or mathematics. And that um, the uh, argument has to be, and this is, you know, an argument that's a common argument uh, afterwards. The argument is on his part that uh, that uh, what had to be seen about the uh, the statements of, let's say, uh, statements of the writer Scripture in Joshua about uh, about the the, the, uh, the uh, standing still uh, has to be understood from the standpoint of the people's knowledge of science at the time. Uh, and had to be, uh, in effect, reinterpreted in line with what people began to discover in uh, more recent in the more recent era, right? And then this is what then causes the first discussions of the Roman Inquisition in in Rome. So, I guess before we get into some of those specific topics about what the Church says versus what Galileo says, and then these discussions. Right. To take kind of a step back and look at the the context of the time. We're in the early 1600s. Right. Uh, we're still, you know, the church is still in the throes of the Counter-Reformation. Trend right. had just happened, what, 45, 40 years before. Um, and does that have any 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 kind of bearing on on what we're doing here? Is the church being I'm gonna spoil it a little bit, but is the church being overly defensive? And trying to kind of rein in things because of the because of whether what they're doing at the Counter Reformation or no. In fact, the church is not in any way really reining in uh, much much of, of anything. All of the all, everything that comes up now comes up simply because there there was a public fuss about what what had happened. Once there's a public debate, you know, and these these 
letters, for example, of Galileo become known, especially the letter to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. It's not meant to be a secret. Then, then you get involved in the picture. And uh, uh, in, in terms of outside influences, first of all, because of the Protestant emphasis upon scripture, upon scripture and the Catholic Church's uh, really uh, neglecting or, or, or being uh, even contemptuous of scripture, there, there is this outside uh, pressure which makes you more uh, concerned about making it clear that you're not neglecting what scripture says. Um, that, that, that you're concerned about what scripture says. And uh, although, although there is a, a, a development of humanism in the 1600s uh, and then the 1700s, which is going to be much, much more concerned about um, a variety of ways of approaching texts, um, one of the um, central themes of the humanists to begin with had been to take uh, the literal text seriously. Um, and so there was on, on the humanist side, although there are humanists who are going to become more and more uh, more and more um, sophisticated, shall we say, in this regard, there is a, a humanist pressure to take the literal text uh, very, very seriously. And then you've also got building up right at this time, we're, we're just at the time of the first stage of the Galileo case, we're, we're, we're at the buildup for what's going to be the granddaddy of the religious wars. Uh, which is the Thirty Years' War. And with the Thirty Years' War uh, coming up, the whole question of, of um, the religious issue and, uh, and uh, making clear your, your position as being the defender of the true faith is going to be, um, is going to be uh, a, um, a factor that, for example, Pope Urban VIII in the second stage of the Galileo case uh, is going to have to take very, very seriously because when he becomes Pope in uh, 1623, the the war is um, is going on and uh, very much uh, in a way that's favorable to the Catholic side of the picture down to 1629 when Gustavus Adolphus comes onto the scene or 1630 when he comes onto the scene. And then the early 1630s with the Protestants starting to get the edge again, uh, this question of the true defender of the faith uh, is a factor that uh, has to be taken uh, seriously. And once more, the Protestants are are um, very keen. Uh, not all of them, but but uh, but the bulk of them are very keen on trying to demonstrate that the church is an enemy of Scripture. Uh, also, there's a kind of parallel battle going on. Not about, um, in a way, it, it can involve. Uh, a spirit which is similar to the battle that involves Galileo, but in the in the Dutch world, there's this battle between the very very strict Calvinists uh, and then the um, the others who are more open to questions involving free will and the influence of free will, the Arminians. Uh, and this is a very very serious debate that uh, is um, of concern up there. And people at the time, some of the people at the time saw saw a parallel about it, about the uh, concern of the forces that represent the Orthodox world to make sure that it's clear that they're doing what they ought to do. So that, that, that's what's there from the outside, really. So and, I guess we can uh, go ahead. And the magical, and the magical cosmological um, influence that you want to demonstrate that you're, um, you're not falling prey to. Sure. 
So I guess we'll get into some of the some of the aspects of the case. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so Galileo is publishing some of these findings, um, and it comes to the attention, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, Saint, Saint Robert Bellarmine. Right. Um, and he, I have a quote from him that seems interesting. Uh, he says, um, interpreting heliocentrism as a physically real thing would be a very dangerous thing, quote, likely not only to irritate all scholastic philosophers and theologians, so it's going to go against what was widely held at the time, right? but also to harm the holy faith by rendering holy scripture as false. Um, mm -hmm. So he's basically saying these scientific discoveries that you're making, it's basically going to make holy scripture false. Or if you publish this, it's going to make people think that holy scripture is false. It seems to be this kind of conflation, this this mix of uh, faith and science, and he's saying this is going to be a problem. How do we defend what Saint Robert Bellarmine said there? Well, I mean, that's not the only thing that Robert Bellarmine said. That he was he's the inquisitor in charge of the thing, but he also his concern was once again that um, th 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 it is not the case uh, in 1615, 1616. That the that the learned world in general, including the world that Galileo uh, is part of, the mathematical world, is on is in agreement about whether or not there is a proof for heliocentrism. Among the people who are even in favor of heliocentrism, uh, a, a good number of them are aware of the fact that they don't have a definitive proof of it. And Bellarmine, um, Bellarmine Bellarmine's whole approach uh, all the time in ways which um, I think we're going to have to come back to, perhaps to summarize the, the, the long-term problems here as well. Bellarmine uh, is concerned with, uh, has a holistic vision of learning. And he's concerned about the impact of theories on other disciplines of learning of all kinds, uh, and is unwilling to overturn what it is that uh, are, the, are the, uh, the, uh, the pillars of other disciplines for the sake of accommodating what could be an enthusiastic acceptance of something which will in the long run prove not to be correct. But he also says that he, he makes it clear that his concern is for Galileo uh, to, to talk about the Copernican theory uh, as a hypothesis, as a theory, uh, and not as a proven fact. That's his chief concern. And he brings up a number of the arguments that are problems, including one which I think has a long-term consequence as well, that, uh, that um, is, um, is very, very clear when you consider the way in which uh, science is going to develop as an ideology that in our own day has uh, worked to destroy science rather than to, uh, than to perfect it. And that is that, um, uh, once again, the, um, the, the, you're talking because Galileo is very keen on experimentation and observation, and that's what he the work he did with Pisa, you know, with the, with you know dropping the weights and all of the rest. And um, and Bellarmine, uh, you know, just makes the obvious point that from the standpoint of of any human being uh, observing what's happening around him, you look up in the morning and it looks like the sun is moving around you, you know, so. So the thing is, if the hypothesis says the opposite, you have to you have to do you have to come up with absolutely clear proofs that save the appearances of things. You know, uh, you got to make it. You got to because otherwise, what's going to happen is the wise man is going to look like a witch doctor, 
um, because what is what you observe is not what's real. And if that happens, then what can go? But what can what can take place is it can feed all of the uh, cosmological theories of the magicians who you're very much dealing with at this time period. Every every uh, ruler in Europe has got a court astrologer and a court uh, magician, uh, from the Queen of England to the Holy Roman Emperor um, and, uh, and 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 others. And you had just in 1600 um, uh, had to deal with Giordano Bruno, uh, who is, I think, uh, the only man that the Roman Inquisition actually uh, put to death, certainly by burning. Um, and uh, that's that's because he he used the Copernican theories, but he plugged them into um, a whole occult, um, esoteric, uh, uh, magical set of speculations as well. Um, and uh, you don't want the mathematician ast astronomer to end up being associated with a kind of uh, esoteric knowledge that is not accessible. Uh, to ordinary people. Um, that's, you know, that's another one of the difficulties here. But Bellarmine also says, and has it, and he says it in writing, um, he says, if, if in the long run, there are proofs, there are proofs of uh, the heliocentric uh, uh, vision of things that, that prove to be accurate, he said, then what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to sort out how to explain um, what it was that um, that people said about this matter in scripture, but he said it's going to have to be a careful um, discussion that's going to um, take time um, and thought in order to be able to deal with. All right, so he's 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 he he kind of admits one of the points of Galileo. He kind of admits one of the points of Galileo, but says we're not we're not in 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 this position. Um, any longer, any at this point at all, and um, and uh, if you look at even, I mean, for example, it's still a debate among uh, among Catholics because there are Catholics who uh, are perfectly willing to accept the argument of Bellarmine and of um, and of uh, and then of Galileo with regard to um, this scriptural reinterpretation, and there's other Catholics who who don't. Obviously, the Church, uh, the official Church. Has uh, has 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 gone so far as uh, I think it's the first of John Paul II's apologies was with regard to decision in the Galileo case and in the manner that he's made that apology by the way the manner that he made that apology would would have um, uh, you know the same kind of lack of infallibility about it as did the decision of the Inquisition um, which was made not you know, really um, in this first stage of discussions of Galileo and Bellarmine, but after uh, Galileo demonstrated that he didn't really want to accept the Copernican idea as a hypothesis, and then uh, tried to debate with the Inquisition, and then the Inquisition got irritated with him, so they issued this decree saying that, you know, part of what was being said here was absurd and against common sense, and the other part of it uh, was... Um, was against the um, the the the, uh, the accepted teaching on scripture, uh, but the weight, uh, you know, on the basis of infallibility of a decision of a congregation or of a statement of the Pope, the the, the way that he made it is not an infallible statement, one way or the other, you know. So, so, so to kind of recap what Bellarmine is saying here, 
or in on behalf of of the Catholic Church, they're saying, so the current interpretation of Scripture is that the Earth is at the center of the universe. That is how we interpret Scripture right now. Galileo, right. you have found this stuff. It may turn out to be true, but careful, hold on. We're right. going to need to recap, and we're going to need to regroup from a theology standpoint and understand and figure out does this actually contradict or not. So Bellarmine is basically saying, put the brakes on what you're saying. Don't distribute it widely because this is going to damage the faith of people. The church needs to figure this stuff out as well. If it turns out to be true, that's fine, but we're going to need to, you know, figure things out kind of simultaneously instead of all of a sudden a scientific or astronomical uh, point of view coming out first that's going to damage people's faith. Yeah, and I mean, again, one has to one has to keep in mind the fact that it's not as though there is this, you know, tidal wave of um, acceptance of the uh, the proofs and the and the the argument as a whole that you're just putting your finger in the dike of. I mean, there really is um, a lot of debate. I mentioned that debate at the Roman College. It seems to be the case that the Jesuits at the Roman College um, believed the heliocentric heliocentric argument, but they didn't they didn't believe the proofs. They didn't believe the proofs, and as a consequence, they thought it was a uh, a, um, a, a, a suitable conjecture, um, a suitable conjecture that looked as though it was true, but you had to wait till you have the, the proofs for it. And the thing is that if you rush into something like this and then it proves to be wrong, um, then you're going to have egg on your face the other direction. Um, and then also there is the case um, of the, 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 the long-term consequences of talking about these matters that that might um, alter the the scientists view and of course we've had in the 20th century explanations about this whole thing um, that even um, uh, argue that um, it doesn't matter um, from a scientific standpoint from the standpoint of of measurements and all the rest it doesn't even matter whether you have the geocentric or the heliocentric view uh, scientifically to explain um, distances and so on and so forth. Uh, but what it does do is it has the long-term impact of uh, of dethroning uh, what happens on the earth and what happens to human beings from being at the center of things in a psychological way that also um, is, 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 is something which is extremely important for understanding the whole picture of what man is and what the universe is as a whole. And I, I can't remember, we may have in a previous discussion brought up this fact uh, that, the, uh, that the whole of the scientific revolution as it's developing um, on the basis of observation uh, and experiment and the like uh, is working together with the idea that uh, is working together with the idea that um, all of this is going to be something of value for uh, for enhancing the life of human beings and the dignity of man. But um, in the long term, what happens with the dethroning of man and what happens to man at the center of the earth does uh, is it kind of destroys any sense of meaning to why human beings should be alive at all in such a way as to really... Um, destroy the argument for why you should bother to rationally understand how to use the things of nature uh, for anything other 
other than um, uh, for for any purpose that would be of of um, of um, of rational use to human beings, and hence the primitivism that we're experiencing today. I mean, man has been dethroned; the dignity of man has been destroyed. Uh, the the dethroning of man has la- now led to the argument that there is no such thing as nature and there is no such thing as natural law, and therefore the whole end of the scientific revolution, um, with its dethroning of the earth and man at the center of things, psychologically as, aside from aside from uh, the, the the teaching of the of the church about these matters, uh, the the whole effect of it has been to destroy reason and science along with everything else. So that's a long-term consequence that you have to be concerned about. Um, so, so it's 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 not it's more um, the the decree of um, uh, the, the 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 decree against Copernicus that comes out in this first stage of the Galileo issue. First of all, it doesn't mention Galileo at all. You know, it doesn't mention him at all. And there's also certain um, oddities, as always, there always are oddities about about the question of the um the 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 decree the decree and the actual wording and so on and so forth but all it is um uh insofar as it involves galileo is a warning to not not you know deal with this as something which is accepted yes the the language against the theory um is 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 pretty clear in the decree but in the practical effect in terms of what it means for Galileo's work is it doesn't really disturb his work um, one bit. And in fact, um, he, he has a Galileo has a letter, has the letter from Bellarmine, which indicates that it's just a warning. It's just a warning um, that involves prudence until the whole matter can be corrected, I think is the language. Donec um, uh, uh, corregatur. Um, but um, I, there, it is anti Copernicus, but as with many of these Roman de- 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 decrees, there's always these loopholes uh, within them. I'm thinking, I mean, thinking in the 20th century, you know, with the with the um, with the condemnation of the Axiom Francaise, one of the things that the uh, the decree said was that the faithful um, were were not permitted to read the daily newspaper, which was called the Axiom Francaise. Um, they were not permitted to read that, and some people went down to Rome. To complain about this um, at the Holy Office, and they were told, "Well, that decree means just don't read it that much," <laughs> you know that kind of thing. So, yeah. so it, it and Galileo just goes back and continues with his work. But that that's where you know the next stage of the difficulty comes out to see. Sure. So, in the next stage, um, am I getting my my facts right? Where he was basically told that he excuse me, he was put under house arrest and said, you know, stop publishing stuff. Was this when this came about or? Well, then, well, I mean, we're talking, the decree comes out in six, uh, 1616, I believe. Let me just check the exact date again. The first one. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. 1616. Uh, but, um, but what happens is uh, the next stage of the game is, is not going to uh, develop until, until much, much later. Um, because Galileo goes back to work, he has more controversies with people. Just trying to see if I can get some of the exact, I don't want to get the dates um, wrong here again. Uh, uh, yeah, he has, he's very, he has another, you know, one of these fights, I think his fight over the comets, question of comets comes in here in the meantime. But then what ends up happening is that one of the cardinals who had been against the condemnation 
where Colonel Barberini is elected Pope in 1623 um, as Pope Urban VIII. So Barberini, well, I mean, Bellarmine was friendly to Galileo. Barberini was even more friendly to, 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 to Galileo. So Galileo gets excited that now what might happen is that uh, he would um, um, is that he would be able to, with this friendly pope, have the decree against the Copernican theory overturned. All right, he wanted to have it overturned. So what he did is he he wrote a book, another book, um, and uh, I think this is the one called Il Saggiatore. Um, he writes another book about about the whole question and dedicates it um, to Urban VIII and. Urban VIII uh, is is uh, he's friendly, but he he doesn't want to get involved. And again, one of the reasons why he doesn't want to get involved uh, is because of the fact that uh, the Thirty Years' War is going along. You got this whole outside issue, this question of 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 of, of in in this case saving the appearance of treating scripture seriously as well, which is very important. And Galileo is peeved. Galileo is really peeved. Now, now Galileo, you know, not in all of his writings, practically, Galileo is uh, is he's he he's acerbic, you know. He's not he's not he's not somebody who he, he's not somebody who just wants to convince you, wants to destroy you if you're an enemy. I have a citation here. Let me see if I can find this quickly. Um, that I um, I uh, it's a famous one, I think, uh, but. Um, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Dr. Rao. Intellectuals are never acerbic about their views. Come on. <laughs> no, uh, there's, uh, there's one, one writer, this is a, a long time ago, in a book called Martyrs of Science. He says this, the boldness, may we not say the recklessness with which Galileo insisted on making proselytes of his enemies served but to alienate them from the truth. In other words, he, he, he's got to, you got to be on his side. If not, yeah. You know, um, he destroys you, and it's 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 an unpleasant feature, and he he can't keep his mouth shut. Uh, I mean, he doesn't seem to have any sense of 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 prudence in this regard. Uh, it's funny because you know, I I um I if I'm lecturing, if I'm lecturing, and I'm not I'm not attacking somebody who's alive around me or whatever, uh, but dealing with things historically. I, I like to, um, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's on the argument, but I don't like face-to-face -face polemics with um, with individuals in which you 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 know you're sort of trying to get a make a point rather than rather than uh, really serve the cause of the truth, and and the result of a lot of this is that at times, um, if there's like say a, a general attack on people on our side um, with regard to an issue. Uh, by name, all sorts of people that I know will be attacked, and my name gets left out. You know, and the reason is because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really kind of. I don't like to make nasty comments about living people. So as a result of that, maybe it's a cowardice on my part in that regard. But Galileo likes to make. He, he does go on the attack. So he writes this another book because he says I got to make the argument more clear still, more clear still. And he writes this famous work of his on the two, on the on the great systems or the two systems uh, of the world, in which what he's going to do is he's going to pit um, the the uh, heliocentric argument against the geocentric argument in the form of a debate, in the form of a debate with um, of two people, and um, and 
uh, he he says things in this work, as he says in previous works, which go go too too far either on a personal level to irritate people or even on an on a on a, on a scientific or ideological level. I think it's in Il Saggiatore uh, uh, that he says, I may be wrong, but I think it's in Il Saggiatore that he says he makes this comment. He says the universe is an open book and mathematics is its language. Well that means that Everything can be known by mathematics. And that's the kind of non-holistic statement that Bellarmine, who by this point is dead, uh, would consider to be dangerous. But uh, in the dialogue that he has there with pitting the two systems against one another, um, the man who is the representative of the, um, of the, uh, the older Aristotelian Ptolemaic view, uh, who's called Simplicio, um, was seen by people to represent Pope Urban VIII. Now, Pope Urban VIII was an erudite, uh, not scientific figure, a humanist more than anything else, but had, but very friendly to Galileo and in no way hostile to this uh, theory, except in the kind of Bellarmine sense of taking everything into account and also having pressures on him. So now Urban VIII is irritated. <laughs> Uh, Urban, he may himself have thought that Simplicio was he. So the case is dragged before um, the Inquisition again. All right, let me get the exact date once more because I um, um, I uh, uh, don't. Looks have... like the second one was 1633. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the 1630s. Uh, 16, yeah, 1632, 1633. By the way, you know, at this point, when it's dragged before the um, the uh, Inquisition again. There's other factors that have entered into the picture as well. I mean, Galileo is not the only one talking about about heliocentrism and um, and then trying to come up with scriptural theories uh, that uh, would allow for its interpretation, uh, scriptures interpretation in line with the Copernican view. There's another guy, I think his name is Foscarini, um, who uh, was, if I'm not mistaken, a Carmelite, but um, but uh, Foscarini would come up with all this. I think he he try he 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 takes um, the candelabra in the temple and uses this to try to defend the Copernican theory. I mean, you've got all kinds of stuff like that. And then there was an Italian scholar in the 1990s um, who uh, said, and his theory is still being debated by people. He said that uh, in the discussions of the Inquisition that he had uncovered that there was more um, to their concern about Galileo than just the Copernican argument, because they felt that in his, um, in his um, physics, in his understanding of things mechanically, that he was playing around with arguments of a sort that would make it impossible uh, for the church to utilize, uh, to, to, to continue to utilize uh, Aristotelian arguments as it had baptized in, in using these to describe what happens with uh, the Eucharist, with transubstantiation, right? Because you, you know, this is, this is a use of Aristotelian terminology um, uh, in, in, in that regard. And other scholars have debated this and said they don't see it, but it's, it's quite possible, given the fact that a lot of the discussions of the Inquisition are secret, that uh, that if uh, there are allusions to this kind of a debate that have come out, that it could well be the case that this is true. I mean, this is the problem that comes up with Descartes when Descartes um, 
uh, divides up um, things that are uh, of the of of the body and things that are of uh, of the, the the spirit, so to speak. Uh, then what happens is you just have a, a mechanism uh, that you're talking about, and uh, and it it it, it causes it wreaks havoc with um, uh, your ability to explain the Eucharist with the term transubstantiation. So there's there's arguments of this sort that come up, but but uh, in any case, the 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 calling of Galileo before the Inquisition the second time around was on the basis of disobedience, disobedience of the um, the uh, the command to only use uh, use uh, Copernicus or talk about Copernicus as a hypothesis. All right, and Galileo goes. He's got the he's got the um, the, the statement from Bellarmine, which says that it's just a warning and that. Um, he has to talk about these matters as an hypothesis. And he said, he said, um, uh, and that's what I did. He said, I just talked about it as an hypothesis. That's why it was a debate. But this was rather, the Inquisition thought this was quite disingenuous because the debate mm-hmm. is a, of a simpleton against, uh, against somebody who uh, is, um, is, is, is the one who's treated as uh, knowing what's what. It's the kind of stuff that uh, later on in the 1600s, uh, the great popularizer, the first great popularizer of Spinoza's ideas uh, in the uh, French-speaking world, Pierre Bayle, kind of argument that the thing that he uses in his journal called the Republic of Letters, that you you present, you 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 say, oh my gosh, um, what horrible ideas these people are 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 spreading, namely the ideas he really supports, and then what you do is you present them magnificently, and then you say. How can he say that when the answer is clearly there? And then he presents the orthodox viewpoint in the mind of a simpleton, in the mouth of a simpleton. And so anybody reading it can say, well, the argument he claims that he's opposing is the one he's really in favor of. Um, And um, Galileo really makes it quite clear which side he's on in this book. So that um, they, they ratcheted the argument up against him. And they said, it's not just disobedience. It's also, it really is very much vehemently smells of heresy now. And um, what happens is that in 1633, then, the case goes once more before um, the Inquisition. And Galileo is primarily accused of disobedience because of the fact that he's said to have uh, violated the, uh, the warning that was given to him. Uh, Galileo has the warning that and the letter from Bellarmine about it with him. And he says, um, I'm, I was just told to deal with this as an hypothesis. Uh, and he said, that's that's what I did with my book. But this was looked upon by the uh, the uh, Inquisition as really, really uh, disingenuous, because all you have to do is look at the way in which he depicts the people who are involved in the dialogue. And you see that the person who's supporting the um, the uh, the older system of the world, the older understanding of things, is is looked at, is is depicted as a simpleton, who is is uh, just overwhelmed by uh, the man who's the supporter of the uh, heliocentric view. So uh, they found this to be just too much to accept. Now there was one other uh, factor that uh, that historians debate here. About uh, about what might have been involved in the case, because the um, the chief figure responsible, I forget his name. Let me just check here. With um, by the way, there's there's something like 
20 volumes of this French series of the history of the church, which is massive. Wow. Uh, but it has a very an excellent discussion of the Gal Galileo case. But the uh, Maculano, his name was, the commissioner of the Holy Office, had a, had a meeting with Galileo, a secret meeting with Galileo, in which what he wanted to do was to clarify uh, certain matters there. And we don't really know what went on at the secret meeting. But what ended up happening is that um, is that Galileo is found guilty of disobedience and uh, also uh, of uh, being vehemently suspect in the case of uh, a heretical understanding of interpretation of scripture. And what then happens is he he um, he, uh, he he abjures his error. All right, this is another one of the uh, um, the the, the uh, elements that ends into the legend. You know, with the argument that he clenched his teeth once he he'd finished doing this and said a pur si muove, you know, but nevertheless the earth moves, which is just the, the first mention you ever get of that is over a century later. Um uh it's it's all part of the the, the myth that's created right. around him as part of the popularization of the martyrs of science, so to speak. And he's found guilty and then is sentenced to house arrest. All right. Another part of the element, uh, the 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 uh, the myth is that he was tortured um, and he was blinded. Galileo was slowly going blind and does go blind in 1637, dies in 1642. Uh, but he's not in any way physically maltreated and he lives the same life that he lived uh, in terms of comfort beforehand. The only thing is, it is true. He's under he's under house arrest. All right. And um and then that's that's where uh, it ends in terms of the um, uh, the uh, the whole uh, uh, official uh, involvement of the Holy Office with Galileo. Uh, oh, another part of the uh, the myth is that he was when he died, uh, he was prohibited from being buried in consecrated ground, which is another absurdity. In fact, Urban VIII sent a blessing um, as he was dying. The only thing that he would not allow is for a monument to be built over his grave, um, which I, I think, if I remember right, has you know was put in um, uh, later. Uh, and he's buried in Santa Croce in uh, in, in in Florence. Uh, but then the whole myth is created afterwards. Uh, in this respect, by the way, uh, it, it's there's many people who've made the point, but I think uh, Cardinal Newman uh, makes it perhaps most succinctly that. That um, when you're talking about this supposed um, uh, battle to the death between the Roman Church and science, and a science and scientific studies and scientific progress that the Church in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance and really right through to the present has always been deeply involved in, uh, as Cardinal Newman points out, the only case that you can bring up is Galileo. That's it. That's it. And the Galileo case is 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 fraught with all of these, you know, problems. I mean, would there have been a Galileo case if Galileo had simply continued to present what he wanted to say as an hypothesis instead of, in effect, going on a kind of 17th century version of the talk show circuit in order to <laughs> um, uh, uh, shove what he was saying down everyone's throat and in an environment where there was all kinds of debate? about these about these matters. 
I doubt it. I mean, Copernicus didn't have a problem for uh, uh, for for 75 years, you know, before this difficulty came up. Uh, and um, it's the only real case that you've got, the only real case that you've got. Uh, and if you pit that kind of a battle insofar as it does involve scientific matters against the damage that's been done to science in the last three years in particular, but prepared for a good long time by the entire ideology of the Enlightenment, which has then utilized the Galileo case to hammer the Catholic Church over the head, um, it's it's ridiculously um, insignificant. I mean, what what the so-called world of science with their ridiculous T-shirts um, and their signs about science is real and the like, what they have done to tie science together with um, Gnosticism and with magical ideas um, and uh, all kinds of alchemical ideals, ideas, which are all of them present in this madness that's sponsored by uh, the transhumanist movement, uh, the posthumanist uh, vision, uh, all of the LGBTQ plus X, whatever it is, uh, and the World Economic Forum and Davos. I mean, what the, the damage that these people have done to science and reason is in, incalculable. Um, and their whole house of cards is going to fall on top of them, uh, but unfortunately bring down uh, real uh, real scientific progress and, the, and, and, as I mentioned once before, the dignity of man in general along with it. Um, if you're going to have a battle as to who is in any way responsible for halting progress, I, I'd stick with the Catholic Church and the one very, very confusing issue involving Galileo any day. So I guess just to kind of sum up the the Galileo case in in and of itself, the the two main issues that the church had was this is unproven. You're you're putting out hypotheses. Yeah, it does contradict the faith, the current understanding of of scriptural interpretation that we've had up to this point. So be careful, calm down about it. And then he continued on and was like, no, 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 this is proof. I've got a, you know, he was kind of grandstanding about it. And the church was like, stop, we're still working through this. You what you're saying can damage souls. Because it's a hypothesis still. Obviously, we know it's not a hypothesis anymore. He was right, but the church wasn't trying to say, shut up about science. They were trying to say, shut up about these incendiary things that could damage faith. We need to do our work at the same time and let's work together instead of being at odds with each other. Right. If he had if he had backed off um and just simply continued um his his scientific work there wouldn't have been this but he he just could not bring himself to do that and i think this is one of the long term problems that has been there in the entire history of the scientific revolution and that's the tendency not of the ordinary working scientist who just often is concerned about what goes on in his laboratory in a way which presents a kind of caricature of the you know, the, uh, the, the egghead that, that's going about his business. But it's been a long-term problem for the whole scientific revolution that it, it is wanted to turn itself into an ideology, um, that it's got to be this, it's got to be only this. And then regardless, I mean, to take, for example, another instance of this, and, 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 and um, the, the one that really dots the I's and crosses the T's on it, uh, uh, you can do a lot scientifically through observation and experimentation and you can uh, uh, uh you can you can um hold up your success 
in doing what you want to do for, through experiment and uh, through observation and experiment, but you still have this other question, ought you to do what you can do? And if you can do what you say you can do, um, is that a result of something that, uh, that um, uh, is, um, is, is meant to be, or is this just another proof of human sinfulness? And here too, I've been. I, this is like a broken record of mine. I don't remember whether I brought this up in previous episodes, but you've got the summary of the ideology and the dangers of it uh, in Bacon, in Bacon, in his books, in his books on the, the New Atlantis um, and on um, the New Organum, uh, where what he does is he, what does he say knowledge is? He says knowledge is for power. Um, and if knowledge is for power, it means knowledge is not for what, both Plato and uh, uh, and uh, uh, the whole of the scriptural tradition tells us knowledge is for, which is to know, love, and serve God. Now, Plato doesn't understand the God of, of the Christians. Obviously, it was before the Christianity, but, um, but he knows that uh, that's what knowledge is for. And if you can use knowledge for power purposes alone, you're using it for something which may well be not part of nature, but of a fallen nature. Uh, and a science that does not want to take that into account is a science, once more, that does not want to see the whole picture of human life. That, that's what Bellarmine is, I think, most concerned about, uh, because you can see this in other uh, uh, work that he does. He, he, he's, he's a polemicist, but a polemicist that does not want to destroy his enemies, which is not what Galileo is like. But he's a man that knows that every part of knowledge has its its place, and if what you do is you come in there, you know, with a with a with a uh, fiery sword and demand that everything give way before your particular type of knowledge, no matter how true that knowledge might be in one narrow realm, if it's not taking into account what the other realms of knowledge are taking telling you about human life and the universe in general, well, then it's, it's going to bring you down, all right? And that's, that's, that's where the real difficulty has come in um, with, uh, with all of this stuff uh, in, yeah. in, in, the course of, in the course of the century since Galileo. Was there any change in the way that the Catholic Church um, viewed science or worked with scientists or any of that sort of thing after the case, did did the church kind of take responsibility and say, "Yeah, we were wrong in this area, or we were right in this area"? Did was there any broader impact on the church vis-a-vis -vis science after this? Uh, well, you know what tends to happen uh, is more um, not not because of the Galileo case, really, not so much that, but um, but because of the the popularizing of Newton, um, and not just Newton, but the whole school. Of um, of thought that um, Newton's Newtonian scientists and Newtonian academies like the Royal Academy um, and the theologians who were connected with this worldview, and then the Whig Anglo-American you know po political outlook that that linked up with it, uh, uh, the the influence of that worldview from particularly the 1730s onwards. Uh, what it did was it um, it um, uh, created the vision that uh, that uh, if what you what you uh, did was to follow the path of observation and experiment along the lines that were being presented in particular by by Newton and his followers, the the, the theologians who were involved with Newton 
call themselves uh, physical theologians. And it's called physical theology, their whole approach. And it, basically, the modern expression of it is creationism. Uh, and what they do is they try to argue that uh, because of all of the divisions in the Christian world, the fighting out of whose, uh, uh, whose debates uh, does nothing but uh, feed the cause of the atheists. What we have to do is back away from doctrinal discussions and back away from doctrinal disputes and then look to the observation of nature and experiment to, experimentation with nature to develop all of the laws of nature. And through the laws of nature and the harmony of the laws of nature, what you can see is that there has been uh, a nature put together in a harmonious, mechanical fashion that indicates an architect. All right. And the architect is the creator God. And this view was looked upon in the Catholic world as well as in um, much of the Protestant world as the best way to move ahead um, to not allow the atheists to exploit Christian divisions. And so you have a lot of Catholic bishops and popes and religious and others saying, you know, back away from all of the disputes. I mean, Galileo was involved in theoretical arguments. You know, mathematics, the universe is, uh, is an open book and math is its language. Back away from all of those disputes because those disputes are also divisive. Whereas if we all unite in just exploiting the laws of nature, we'll see it's too harmonious to have, any, have had anything other than a creator, uh, God, behind it. And the whole scientific revolution then, in effect, is taught um, uh, as though you can um, you can go down that pathway with no difficulties whatsoever, while at the same time keeping your Catholic doctrine, but not making a big fuss out of talking about it and defending it, and uh, missing what people then did see when you get into the uh, the period of the, uh, uh, the the revolution and then the 19th century, which is that you know this experimentation, observation-based science that backs away from theoretical discussions of things uh, may very well give you arguments for indicating that there is a creator behind the universe, but it doesn't give you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't give you the Trinity. You know, it gives you deism. Um, yeah, there's a God, right. but that's it. You know, that's all there is to it. And that argument pumped into the way in which uh, uh, the um, the whole uh, physical theological argument uh, was was devised is just a way station ultimately to uh, pure uh, uh, panthe immanentism pantheism because for example Newton Newton um, Newton said that um, that everything was harmonious but there were inexplicable uh, there were nevertheless inexplicable footprints of the Creator God. Um, in nature uh, that, that could not be explained, of which the most important was gravity, uh, the attraction you know, of, of gravity. And Spinoza, the atheist, had already indicated that um, the mere fact that you can't explain aspects of nature now doesn't mean that you won't be able to explain them later. So that people uh, of the next generation of Enlightenment thinkers who heard the arguments of the physical theologians, I'm thinking right now, for example, of I think it's it's um, uh, Gibbons, Gibbons, the historian of the you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbons said, "When I heard the arguments of the um, 
of the uh, physical theologians. He said, I lost my Christianity and became a deist. You know, and then others said, and then I went from my deism to my atheism and said, science will explain everything eventually. So, so the church just kind of, I mean, church men kind of um, fell into just accepting the fact that, you know, we've got our Catholic faith. We don't talk about it much. We just go ahead with doing what we, what we do scientifically. And I think that, you know, to a large degree, many, many Catholics continue to have this this kind of worldview. They don't want to have debates about doctrine and about God or whatever. Your God is fine. My God is fine. That kind of thing. Um, and we'll just, you know, we just, we'll just, in effect, live in two different kinds of worlds. Um, the one world of the daily practice that we live in is run by scientific ideas. Um, and then on Sunday, we go to our, you know, our, our, our own particular church and pray a little bit, but it doesn't, they don't really, um, you know, get confused with one another. Um, uh, this, I don't like this apology, uh, apology business that began uh, with, uh, with John Paul II, uh, with Galileo, I think is the first of his apologies, because again, it, it, it just takes everything out of the context and makes it seem like there was a one-sided issue here. Uh, here too, I want to bring up Benedict XVI once more, because Benedict XVI was not a scientist. And in my mind, he talked a bit too much about um, uh, without, um, without criticizing the scientific problems behind it uh, about all of this climate change business. You know, he talked too much about that. But he was aware that it was plunked into a religion of ecology. And he says that religion of ecology gave a number of speeches on this, on this to, to learned um, audiences. He said it's plugged into a religion of ecology, which misses the whole understanding of a human being. And he said, if you were going to, if you want to talk about ecology, you have to talk about human ecology. And he said, and the human ecology would recognize that a purely naturalist ecology that doesn't take into account the, 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 the possible errors of your own science, but then also the entire picture of what nature is there for, flips everything around and then makes human beings simply the servant of an unthinking, irrational, uh, purposeless nature to which, you know, everything, including human life, has to be um, has to be sacrificed. And that's the broader Bellarmine understanding of things. Uh, because uh, again, uh, nobody has apologized on the other side of the picture for anything that that, that they have ever done. Um, and what uh, has been done by the enemies of faith um, through the past um, uh, five centuries has been has been uh, you know has been horrendous. Mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, that's that's where that's 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 what things are for a lot of people. I think in the Catholic Church, you just don't bother to talk about these matters. Or nowadays, I mean, people are are just um, uh, just uh, uh, you know either reacting against everything in a way that um, uh, it might make them uh, skeptical of the value of science as a whole in any regard. Uh, that's always a possibility. Or they're reacting by just simply dropping um, huge chunks of what would have been considered not. Uh, faith and doctrinal matters, but rational and common sense deductions about the meaning of things, as for example, with regard to the relation of the sexes, um, 
if you had told people a hundred years ago that the scientific world would be justifying believing that you could not define what a woman was, I mean, they would have yeah. thought that you were talking um, uh, madness. Uh, and yet that's that's the reality of it. Yeah, that's the lesson to be learned is that science without an under, a broader understanding of the purpose for science, the purpose for human beings existing is is going to get to the wrong conclusions real fast. Absolutely. And we we see it. We I mean we see it everywhere around us now. We see it everywhere around us. Yeah. Dr. Rao, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, I know you've got a flight to catch a little bit later on this afternoon, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. But uh, for these last five, six episodes, thank you so much for all the time you put in uh, preparing these for us. It's been great. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.